You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. All right, y'all. Well, we'll just get right to a question. We had somebody who specifically targeted a banter question, and so I want I want to honor that. Uh, Monopoly or Scrabble? Scrabble. Monopoly. Risk. Oh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm in with that. Can I play? Uh huh. Yeah, sure. Okay, um, okay, so Scrabble, you said? Yeah. That does not surprise me. In you the know least. that, like, that is my. That's my thing. I'm words with friends is your thing too. No, I will not play words with friends. What Why do I see not? you playing? Scrabble. Is it Scrabble? Yeah. I'm okay. a oh, so there's like a branded Scrabble app game. Yeah. Do you? Do you, who do you uh, what's your username? Because <laughs> I'd like to start trolling you on Scrabble. It, Scrabble app. It's just that you play it through Facebook. Okay. But I don't play. I only play certain people. Okay. Do you ever? Oh wow! wow. I feel, she like looked over at me as if like <laughs> yeah. JTA would dominate you. Do not. Uh, yeah. Let's play. Well, I'll play you. You right. and I would play. <laughs> I believe it, and trust me. If she wins, the world's going to know. Yeah. The world's going to know. Um, okay, so, so Scrabble, but but if your options were Monopoly or Scrabble, what would you pick? Monopoly. It feels more like world domination to me. Oh my god! That's because you've never played me in Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. That's really good. Hi, my name is Addie Tyson. I'm from Newark, Ohio, and I have a question for JT. Um, I was wondering about the being indwelt with the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament, what he does with the verse um, Exodus 31.3, where God says that he specifically provided someone um, filled with the Holy Spirit to help with the building of the tabernacle. And also, I was wondering... Um, if he if he really believes that um, Moses could inspire scripture and not to mention all the rest of the Old Testament writers without being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So uh, look forward to seeing if you guys answer my question. Thank you for all you do. Bye. Abby, what a great question. Abby, 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 Abby. <laughs> out, out there in Ohio. Let the Arctic speak. Yes, please. Hey, I, I am so glad please. you asked. Yeah, so she asked two great questions here, just to kind of, unless you missed it, there is the question of Exodus 31, which is a holy ab and bezalel, and then the question of, which we didn't even bring up, how were people able to write mm. under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, if not indwelt by the Gosh, very same? You guys are asking this so condescendingly. I feel like she really was having a charitable theological dialogue. <laughs> well, I'm she doesn't, she doesn't, she doesn't know, know you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, goodness, what a great question. And this, if, if we were to not talk about some of the stickiness and complexities of this question, like theologians disagree about this at an academic level, at a church level, and at a, at obviously a conversation. At a friend level. At a friend level here too. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, what I'm not saying is that the Holy Spirit was not doing things forever. I'm saying the Holy Spirit has been eternally God, eternally active. God never does anything as Father by himself or as Son by himself or as Spirit by himself. So if God has done anything ever, it was through the Holy Spirit. Creation, redemption, consummation, everything is, 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 a, is an act of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not trying to suggest in Exodus or in the inspiration of scriptures that the Spirit is not acting, moving, coming upon people, directing people, governing, guiding, speaking to. All of that is absolutely happening, period. Do you think does that answer the questions? Yeah, you don't think he was sanctifying anyone. 
it's not that I don't think he was sanctifying anyone. He, he, I, I think he was actually there's – there's a way that he could be imparting belief, granting righteousness and faith. I'm not trying to say he was not active. Sancti- he could be doing sanctification. You're just saying that he's not indwelling. Indwelling. Okay. And, 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 but again, indwelling, you could be using Hebrew words, Greek words to, to mean perhaps different things because – and here's the challenge. Jesus says he wasn't given yet. John 7.39 says – now this he said about the Spirit, whom those whom he, uh, sorry, I'm gonna start over. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Future tense. They've not believed yet. They have not received yet. And then he says it. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So one of the things that I, I would I would ask you guys to answer is and I, I don't mean this like it's going to come out harder than I mean it. You're thinning out redemptive history. I don't think that is true at all. But you are because was first Jesus, of all, no one has ever accused either of us of being thin. Oh, definitely not me. <laughs> you're, you're thinning out the st- you, you. Okay, how about this? You're running the risk of thinning out sure. the storyline yes. of scripture. That let's, is, let's say mm-hmm, let's say that's that. softer. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Is there a sense in which Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, God has accomplished all things in his eternal decree. But yet you wouldn't say that he actually was crucified in the story of Exodus. No. Even though forgiveness of sins is happening, you would say he was crucified in history, in the economy. So some of the difference here is things that are happening eternally or at at intra in the divine life. Has the Spirit always been given and eternally proceeding from the Father and Son? Yes. But we know that because he proceeds in the economy or in history. There was a time, Jesus is saying, when the Spirit had not yet been given. And to not acknowledge that is to thin out the storyline of the Bible. That is true, but it's not true. I don't think that it's true in the way that you think it's true. I agree with you. The Spirit had not yet been given and that this is a matter of degree, not of kind. Okay? That it's not as if a new work of the Spirit is happening. But a bigger but or a, a more, a fuller. A fuller work of, yeah, the, fuller spirit. Work of the Spirit. Yeah. He's rubbing his old man face. But, but, you, but you insist that it is, a, <laughs> it is a matter of kind. And I just don't, one, I have some problems with the, the, the soteriological or doctrine of salvation consistency, if that's the case. So I will say but, that my Kyle, argument. He says that he had not been received, not that he had been received and was getting a different kind, had not been received. Sure. So if you take the most wooden reading Yes, of it, there it is. Oh Thank you, Kyle. Which is boggling okay, to me because Bible you, literacy you, typi- over here. you typi- I just trying to listen you to the typically, text. You typically, this is why I don't understand this, is you typically are with me in trying to uh, see any single verse in light of the whole witness of Scripture. But in I, this yeah. moment— Hold you, on. Why, why does Acts 2 matter if he's already been given? Because Guys, this is bananas. This <laughs> okay. is crazy. You know, we should rename the Q&A the fight episode. No, I'm just saying— I'm actually trying to be charitable. You guys are coming at me. No, no. Okay, so <laughs> this is— uh, Okay, we should say again, real quick, both of these are viable options. You have 30 seconds left to finish answering this question. This, that is not enough time for this question. Oh um, but, but I do think that, uh, that it is no less significant to say that at Pentecost, what we're seeing is a reception of a unique, in the history of redemption, degree of the fullness of the Spirit. I disagree. But I do think that there are— <laughs> Okay. Ba- 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 okay. 
That was really good discussion. Um, All right. I got to say, I didn't get, okay. the, I didn't get you my get 30 a little seconds. Rebuttal. You you're thinning seconds. out the divine life. You're thinning out what God does in redemptive history, and you're misunderstanding how redemptive history flows from the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. <laughs> I love your smile right now. So I'm, okay. I'm, I'm a little you don't surprised get a you used your rebuttal for name calling. <laughs> uh, exactly and right. Personal attacks, but I mean, <laughs> okay. Fine. Whoa, whoa. Oh, okay. I didn't name call. Huh? I didn't name call. No, you I name called. I'm, I'm a little bit hurt. I'm crying. All right. So roll the next voicemail. Yep. Here we go. Hey, I think this is the number for the Knowing Faith team. I just want to appreciate you guys putting this number out. Uh, for a Twitterless 27-year-old, um, the question I had uh, dealing with college student discipleship, what do you guys think is the biggest need for discipling college kids? Um, and probably more so with uh, Jen, uh, as a parent of college students, what does she hope that uh, her kids are getting from the church members uh, and campus ministry team members that her kids may come in contact with? What does she hope that they are giving her students disciple-wise and whatever churches that they go in those college years? I really appreciate you guys uh, listening to this. My name's Tyler, and I am from Jonesboro, Arkansas. Thanks. Tyler, you rock. So here's what I would say as a parent has been my um, my experience with what my own children have received, they they were in they have been in a really good environment post leaving the village and going off to college. Uh, the things that have mattered the most to them are first of all community. They needed to be around uh, other believers who were not their mom and dad who were saying what their mom and dad had said to them, assuming that they grew up in a believing home. So some of the way you answer this obviously depends on whether the college student that you're speaking of is someone who grew up in the church or is a new believer, but even Either way, that community piece is going to be huge because college is the great leveler in terms of relationships. Everyone needs community walking into college, which is why it's such a perfect time for a college ministry to offer not just uh, community with other college students, their peers, but also multi-gen inter- interactions so that they can see what it means to be a fully formed follower of Christ as you mature just in number of years. Um, but the other important piece of that is that that community involved the teaching of sound doctrine and also uh, Bible literacy tools because most of these kids, if they grew up in the church, many of them during their time in high school or middle school ministry were not given the Bible. They were given a lot of other stuff, um, but they the community focus was actually given to them heavily in middle school and high school when they still had some other mechanisms of community surrounding them, which is not to say that's bad, but the emphasis can be overstated. And, and then those who did not grow up in the church completely lack Bible literacy. So to give them a a sweet little cocktail of sound doctrine and Bible literacy within the context of Christian community has been a gift to my own kids and I think a good pattern for college ministry. Hello, my name is Joshua from uh, Krollsgar in Northern Ireland. Hello to uh, Jen, JT and Kyle and the rest of the Knowing Faith podcast crew. I love your show, and um, I think the banter you guys have between each other is really cool. Anyway, here's my question. Um, what advice would you give to a member of a church who has, uh, which the church has gone through vacancy and called a minister whose influences are very different to your own or the denominations and, the, and now struggles in many aspects of the Sunday service? Should they stay or find somewhere else? For example, a Presbyterian church with a with a vineyard or a battle-style minister. 
this call is probably going to cost a lot of money. So I thought I'd squeeze in another one quickly. Um, <laughs> our wee country was the last in the UK and Ireland to decriminalise abortion and same-sex marriage just last Monday. Many Christians from all denominations gathered to pray and tried to resist um, the legislation. But now that the legislation has changed, how do we reconcile the apparent evil that has prevailed and do we just let it be or should we continue to voice objection? Thanks again. Um, your show is fantastic. Uh, and Trevor, see ya. Bye. Okay, all the way from Northern Ireland. Thank you for listening. And those are two really great questions. Um, uh, One, uh, let's just start with the the, the first one, right? So it seems like there's a pastoral vacancy, and then the the the, it's filled by somebody that's outside, maybe of what the where the church has been Mm -hmm. in terms of pastoral leadership. That Mm -hmm. was, I think, the question, right? Okay, so. What do you do if there are some differences there? I think this is a big uh, – this question gets to the question of what is a church and what is a healthy church, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I will say that it's probably important for every member of a church to have some sort of view or uh, perspective on what the church, global and historic, has said is a church and what is a healthy church. There are always going to be preferential things that you're going to have to be willing to to give on because the church calls all of us to self-sacrifice, to lay down our preferences uh, for the good of the body and for the going forth of the gospel. And there will be things stylistically that change. I mean, pastors, uh, pastors bring their unique self in leading the church, and they do it within the context of the global and historic community of faith. But they do bring unique emphases that may be formed by their experiences or their theological tradition or their educational background or any number of things, just how God has wired them. So I do think that if I was in a place like you are, I would be asking the question, are the differences here substantive enough that they now transgress what I think it means to be a church? If that's the question, then it's no longer a church and you probably shouldn't be a member there. You should find another ch- – uh, you should find a church to be a part of. So that is like the core things. This would be things like do they preach the gospel? If the answer to that is categorically no, well, then it's not a church. Are they observing and practicing in some faithful way – and there are many faithful ways – the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism? If the answer is no, then you don't have a church. You probably should go find a church. Do they have some view that the church should be holy and its witness? Are they calling people to follow Jesus um, by being a disciple of Christ Jesus? If the answer is no, then you then you're not at a church. And so those would be some of the core things of a church. Beyond that, you you need to kind of settle for yourself. What do I think are in, uh, indicators of a healthy church? Now, for some people in different traditions, those can be different things. That's why we have a multitude of theological traditions and denominations and networks and kinds of churches is because some of the answers to the healthy church question or the uh, – I had a professor that used to distinguish between the being of a church and the well-being of a church, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you hear close-handed and open-handed. And so if you're saying, I think this is a church, but I don't know that it's any longer a healthy church, you shouldn't do that alone. You should do it in conversation with the leaders, pastor or elders, whatever your governance structure is. At your church, you shouldn't sow gossip. You shouldn't be divisive. You should approach uh, the uh, the leaders of your church with respect and deference, uh, and to try to speak to them clearly about the concerns. But if you become convinced that it's it is a church, but it's not a healthy church, uh, and again, that should not just be your own thoughts on the matter. That should be done in consult and counsel with what the church has historically set our markers of health. Uh, then then it might be time for you to transition. So mm-hmm. those are a few quick thoughts. You guys have anything that's to add good. to this? No, I think that's really good. That was it? Appreciate okay. it. 
questions. Um, okay, so the second question yeah. is a question about the relationship between the church and the state and mm-hmm. the Christian and witness and bearing witness in uh, a society. You can even make this even smaller in an organization, institution, but essentially any place that the Christian finds themselves where the majority or the the whole, the mm-hmm. institution, um, uh, are uh, uh, – is going in a different direction, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. morally, theologically. Mm-hmm. I mean, whatever it could mm-hmm. be. So, how would you advise him? He's saying, "Listen, we've been we've become the last Northern Ireland's last yeah. country to decriminalize abortion and same sex marriage. So, what do we do? Do we keep resisting, or do we stay silent? What what is it?" So many institutions in the West have uh, been shaped and formed by the Judeo Christian vision of morality. Mm-hmm. We're talking about h- hundreds and hundreds of years of us kind of getting to the church has been able to live on the exhaust fumes of things that God did centuries in the past. And what we're experiencing right now is a massive cultural shift Mm -hmm. where, and I think it was uh, Russell Moore who used some of these categories of we used to experience being a part of the moral majority, but we're going to have Mm -hmm. to learn how to, how to use and flex the muscles of being the prophetic minority. And I think that's what, what was experienced uh, a few weeks ago in Ireland and is going to be experienced increasingly by Christians in the West as a vision of secularism and humanism begins to kind of seep its way into our institutions and the moral fabric of the way we view view the world in the West, we're going to find ourselves on the outside Mm -hmm. a lot more, needing to be prayerful, asking God for renewal, for him to do something, Mm -hmm. not just for us to enact more policies, but really dependent upon on a revival of, of, uh, of Christianity. Yeah. I, um, Joshua, I've had the opportunity to come to Northern Ireland twice. And uh, so when that announcement hit, I saw the grief of friends that I have made when I've been there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a challenge to me. It was instructive to me to remember to grieve mm-hmm. with the freshness of the grief that was being experienced there. Uh, and just how over time, when this is an issue that feels, quote, off the table in many ways in a, in a post-Christian culture that you forget to remember to grieve. Um, and so there was that piece. And then in thinking about your question and like, gosh, I thought, I don't know that we have anything to teach yeah. um, to you on this. Other than that one, I will say one thing I have seen emerge as a positive response to the move uh, increasingly away from the pro-life message is that believers have begun to develop a more holistic whole life pro-life mm-hmm. ethic as a response. I think that we're thinking more broadly and deeply about this than we were when the issue for us was just whether or not abortion was legalized. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a gift. It's a costly gift. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's a good thing that 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 legislation passed here or where you are, but that the Lord has used that, um, that sorrow to bring about uh, a better understanding among Christ followers, not just Christ followers, but certainly among Christ followers about what it means to truly um, cherish image bearers. That's good. good. Yeah, that's good. We'll go ahead and hit the last one here. I think this, is this the last voicemail we have? Okay. I, Hey, Knowing Faith crew, JT, Jane, and Kyle. It's Brad, uh, the guy who edits the episodes for you guys. Uh, Ryan and I, uh, your producer, it, we were wondering why you guys never invite us to lunch after we record the podcast. Um, yep, that's it. Thanks. See you guys. Uh, okay. Well, I feel like uh, you can tell why. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, you, if you have to invite yourself, it's really not a party, is it, Brad? 
if it's if it's if it's any consolation, most of the time the lunch is uh, us just arguing about what we just were arguing about. <laughs> You're not missing out on much. So if you if you'd like to have lunch with JT, Jen, and I, just mm-hmm. find a place where we argue in a podcast. Put it on and eat your yeah, food. We, we don't invite you because we don't want to ruin your appetite. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> um, no, but you know this is a good moment to say the podcast would not happen without Brad Weigel and Ryan, Ryan Williamson. Williamson. There's that's no doubt. Right. Yeah. So if you're if you if you listen to this and you think that one of us is designing stuff for this or <laughs> engineering the audio or doing anything, I mean, we wouldn't even know where to begin without these folks. And so we're gonna have Ryan on in a future episode. It's coming. She's pumped. She's but yeah. She I, mm-hmm. I can see that just the fire in her mm-hmm. eyes right now. She's mm-hmm. excited. Um, all right, so those were our voicemail questions. Thank you guys for submitting those, for calling in. Um, we do have some Twitter Can I ask my question? Go for it. I've got a question I want, I've been wanting to ask Kyle for a while. Oh, gosh. Do you promise I, to answer it? I know what no, you're going to ask me. You don't have to promise anything to him. <laughs> okay. Um, what was your original tagline for Mosaic Church? <laughs> Dude, okay. <laughs> I cannot. You said I could ask this during the Q&A. Mm-hmm. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Is this an okay time? You... Yeah, go for it. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm, so I'm setting the timer, though. I cannot believe. I think my wife is going to probably. You're going to be glad I set the timer. This is on not break my knees. This is a PG. It was just to be like, this is PG. Yes, it is. Okay, so um, real quick, when we were thinking about Mosaic Church, one of the things that we went through was like a branding exercise, which is just kind of get some identity around like mm-hmm. who's your church going to be, why does it exist, all these things. And so we knew the name Mosaic Church was there, but we were sitting with some folks in the comm department at the village, and they were like, "Hey, you should come up with a tagline, even if you no, never." They you, were going to come up with. One. They were going to come up with a tagline. Him, let him tell his story. They were going to come up with a tagline. I was like, I don't like any of. Them. They submitted a bunch of stuff to me. I didn't like any of them. I, although we ended up going with one of them, and I now I love it. But at the time, I was like, I'm going to get a legal pad out, and I'm going to. I'm going to come up with a tagline. So one day I'm sitting in my house and I start writing down taglines and I'm like, okay, Mosaic, Mosaic Church, you know, God makes us whole, Mosaic Church, you belong here, Mosaic Church, we belong together. Like I'm writing a bunch of stuff out. Because it, what is a mosaic? A mosaic is, a, you know, a bunch of pieces that are brought together by the hand of an artist to create something more like, beautiful. Like these, yeah, like broken up pieces and you put them all together and you make a beautiful thing. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what we're going for here. And that's what I want to be a part of the part of our church. And, you know, as a, as a genuine aside, the Lord has done a cool work doing totally. just that thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Despite my but attempt to ruin tag- it with a tagline. the tagline was not. Exactly. So, so I'm writing down a bunch and I come to one and I immediately am like, boom, this <laughs> is it. I write it down and I'm like, this is, this is gold. So that night we have home group and I'm like, okay, all these people are going with me to, to plant Mosaic Church. I'm going to workshop these. So I, I, I get down and I put it in the middle of the list because I didn't want to signal to him with the first or the last one that this was my this favorite, was favorite one. And I hadn't read them out loud. I just written them down, right? And then, which is an important part of this story. And so I, I start going through the list. And I'm like, Mosaic Church, we belong together. Mosaic Church, you belong here. God, you Mosaic Church, God makes us whole. And I get to my favorite one and, I, and, I look, and I'm like, Mosaic Church, broken butthole and somebody goes excuse me did you just say broken butthole and i was like i hadn't heard it on on the pad it was broken comma but but whole like which is like wow that's that's what we are we're broken but But god makes makes us whole together but when you say but it, but when you say it, homonyms. Whoo, man! And I'm telling no, you, no homophone. That's a homophone. And it was, it was, it has stuck, and and it has. Uh, yes. it, now that is not just to be clear. That is not the official tagline of Mosaic Church. <laughs> What'd you guys come up with? 
Uh, you belong here. That's right. You belong. Which That's we better. love. That's um, better. Which we love. It is, <laughs> it is better. Better. Uh, it is Shout better. Shout out so, to anybody who's a marketer, communicator out there. Uh, you you've got have a hard, a hard job. job. You've got you a hard job. You've got a hard job. Congratulations for doing good work. Uh, and <laughs> I'm so glad you Keeping should. people like me out of lawsuits yes. and all sorts of problems. Um, all right. From well, having people Google you looking yeah. for something that you <laughs> are not exactly exactly. <laughs> oh man, I cannot believe I told that story. Please don't at me with that story. You're welcome, everybody. You've got you it. It's a, are it's a gift that's been given to you when you when you're vulnerable with somebody. You give them your sword. I have given you my sword. Defend me. Don't don't stab me with it. Um, okay. Hard turn uh, into some real questions from uh, listeners of Knowing Faith. We're 21 minutes in already, so we're going to try to do probably 20 more minutes of questions. We'll see what we get to. Let's start with this. If a 12-year-old asks, what is the difference between a Christian man and a Christian woman, what would you say? Primarily biology. Okay. You mean anatomical Just, yeah, differentiation? Yeah, anatomical yeah, differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'd say, okay. well, I- Which is then going to play itself out in, in real life, how you experience the world, whether it be maybe through strength, vulnerability, power, mm-hmm. weakness, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything to add to that? No, I think that's good. I think just knowing the the way that this often this this conversation can happen, I'd probably say, well, before we talk about that, let's talk about what they share. Yeah, sameness. <clears throat> and then move move to the distinction. Piece. And you can go mm-hmm. right to Genesis 1 and 2 for that, right? Mm-hmm. To go like, look. Yeah, and there are a lot of good conversations to have specifically with that um, age demographic where their their body is experiencing a lot mm-hmm. of change. And so the embodiment piece is something that they're ready to talk about, I think, you know. That's good. Uh, like you know they're they're doing they're 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 learning about the changes that they're going through and and it can be such a time of upheaval yeah and so it's the perfect time i think to have that conversation so kudos to whoever asked the question but you i would say be sure to try to talk about um, whatever the differences are between men and women in terms of start with the biology piece that will be plenty for a child of 12 to be able to absorb yep that's good all right we gotta, we're going to talk about something else here. So recently there's been some question over complementarianism in the Southern Baptist Convention. There's been a lot of that in the last year, two years. Mm-hmm. But there was recently an incident uh, with John MacArthur and mm-hmm. Beth Moore where there was just a uh, – you know, there's a lot that can be said about this and there's a lot that has been said about it. But I do know that we got a lot of questions about, wh- hey, when are you guys going to say something about mm-hmm. this? Because this is one of – I don't know that it's too much to say. This is one of like a few topics that the three of us have said we're willing to talk about this. Right. And I'll tell you what I got. I got a lot of DMs. Like people didn't respond to the open platform with, hey, what are you going to say about this? But I got a lot of DMs saying I really need to hear from you guys on this. Uh, and so – and are you going to issue a statement or anything like that? And so I think we kind of felt like, well, I mean, we have talked about this. I right. mean, we – which is why someone would even approach us on this in the first place. Yeah, we did – if, you, if you're not familiar, we did a whole podcast episode mm-hmm. called Generous Complementarianism. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the most downloaded – Ryan, is it the most downloaded? It's the most downloaded probably by a long shot mm-hmm. episode that we've ever done. Mm-hmm. And so – but let's talk a little bit r- right here because it does feel like there are some red herrings in the conversation about this. Yeah. The thing that threw me off the most was um, where is this army of women within the SBC that is storming the pulpit? Like I just 
I don't know other SBC women leaders who that is what they want. Uh, and so that was really strange. Not only that, but Beth Moore has been on record saying that she doesn't want that. So that was really strange. And I think it just had to do with probably that when he responded to a question about Beth Moore, he saw her more as a category than as a person who was actually, right. you know, driving a particular agenda. Um, so there was that piece. And I just, you know, always like to remind people that if Beth Moore wanted to be a pastor or if Jen Wilkin wanted to be a pastor, we certainly would be. Yeah. So that it, was a weird part of it. Which it's, like, it's not like there aren't viable <laughs> traditions and churches, right, that, yeah. that already have this precedent yeah. in place. Yeah, and so I think that the, the thing – I always feel like those conversations are just kind of missing the point because the question is why – what has to be dealt with is the fact that there are women within conservative theological environments who are there by conviction. Yes. Um and so what do we do with them? Yeah. And then, you know, you got to then there were all of these semantics problems, like um, when we say that a woman can't preach. Well, a lot of us use the term preach in a lot of different ways. Yeah, pretty loosely. Yeah. Uh, or hold authority over a man. Uh, there are all kinds of authority. You know, I mean, like one of the one of the things that's hard when you're having that conversation is. I've been reflecting on this a lot, like any teacher that we've ever had, whether it was our kindergarten teacher, whether we took a cooking class at a community college, anyone who teaches us any subject teaches with a level of authority because they're the subject matter expert. And so um, so when you start talking about a woman not having authority over a man, well, does that mean that men never learn anything from women because all teaching carries some form of authority? And it just gets muddy really fast. And so it felt like in the wake of that, there were a lot of people shouting at each other using the same words in different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's really disorienting to the person who's just kind of tuning in. The way that I think a lot of the people who DM'd me were tuning in, they're like, I know that there are very real implications for me of how this settles out, but I can't even tell what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that is 100%. And if... Well, and of course, here if you make the issue, there's a bunch of uh, there's a bunch of women who are trying to search pulpits. Well, then you can you can politicize mm-hmm. the issue. Then mm-hmm. it becomes this institutional mm-hmm. reality, and you can put up the walls to defend this some sort right. of onslaught. But it's a fiction. Right. But it's a convenient fiction. It's a red herring. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not right. happening. It's, it's not, not happen- happening. It's not happening. But it's easier to make those it women seem- have left. Yes. The women who feel that strongly about it are not in the SBC but anymore. Here's the reason why that is such a convenient answer is because it prevents both sides of this argument. It prevents mm-hmm. the side that goes. Uh, that's more in this like uh, go home camp, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. and pr- uh, uh, prevents this other side uh, that's like, yeah, there should be essentially mm-hmm. let's be dismissive mm-hmm. over what the Bible's complementarian mm-hmm. vision is from giving what I think everybody in the middle wants, mm-hmm. which is a better and more persuasive answer for what the Bible is talking about. Yeah, it's the fam. It comes back to the family issue for me. Is mm-hmm. like there's a fraction of women within the church who have a gift for teaching and are going to need a place to use it. But over half of our congregation is female and has some kind of gift that is needed for the body. And if we only talk about this issue of where it's proper for a woman to teach or not teach, and that's an excuse or a means by which we never talk about the bigger issue, which is where are church mothers visibly mm-hmm. serving in the life of the church, that's the red herring element of it for me. Is And, and the thing is, is you can stir up all kinds of energy around the teaching thing. Uh, but when we do that and then we never get to the real issue of, hey, if I go and visit your church, like if I were to go and visit the churches of the men who were on that panel, would I see women visibly flourishing in leadership of any kind? Well, probably not, because I think they believe leadership is a gendered is a gendered uh, thing. 
Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered towards your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. The CSB Life Counsel Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. One maybe piece of advice that I just would encourage, uh, maybe specifically if you're a pastor or a, a male leading the life of the church, maybe you're not the pastor, but you're ministering or whatever. This is, I think it's important for us to recognize and realize this uh, it can feel like we have less at stake at this with this in this conversation. We don't. We have a lot at stake also. Because as we've talked about on the podcast before, there is no such church where one gender is flourishing. If if women in your congregation or in your ministry aren't flourishing, then neither are you and neither are the other men around you. And also to realize that for for a lot of women, when this conversation comes up, it it invokes – I don't mean to say they're not courageous. They are, but they get a sense of fear of like, okay, am I at a safe place to have this conversation or – or am I going to be met with a, a comment that mm-hmm. belittles me or, or tells me that I don't have any space here? And so it's it's an opportunity for us to invite our sisters into conversation, ask them what their gifts are, where they could be employed, how we can develop them professionally. And I'm, I'm honestly not trying to even make any comment about about what what uh, John MacArthur said, but I do I do want to say that I, our response should not be that. It should be different. It should mm-hmm. be an invitational, conversational, welcome welcoming them in to leadership in the life of the church and deciding together how to. Be- I mean, Jen, you and I were just at a conference, last, separate conferences, but then we ended mm-hmm. up in the same church and having mm-hmm. a conversation. And there was somebody we talked to who who, who was basically just saying, "I'm so afraid mm-hmm. to have this conversation because I'm afraid." that I'm going to be perceived as usurping and trying to gain authority over my pastor if I teach anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, we just tried to, we sat with her for 10, 15 minutes just saying, mm-hmm. that's not, it's, I don't, I can't say it's not going to happen, but it's likely not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's important that men be creating safe environments for those conversations to happen where they know, or where they can tell their sisters, you're not perceived as a threat here. Yeah. If you want more on that, we did an episode on generous complementarianism. I think one of our other Q&A spent a fair amount of time on it, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
what are the benefits or dangers of reading the apocryphal or non-canonical writings? I don't think there's a lot of danger in it. Me either. I mean, the benefits are um, particularly you think about some of the books like First and Second Maccabees and Book of Enoch. I mean, it just there are there are uh, particularly those apocryphal books that fall between the Old and the New Testament or the intertestamental period books. They're integral to understanding what's happening in the Gospels. We're not talking about like the Gnostic Gospels, no, or like Gospel like, of Thomas, yeah. or mm-hmm. no. We're talking about intertestamental writings. Although I wouldn't say too like <clears throat> those Don't are read do, it. like burn those books. But you need to know what it is. Yeah, I would just say that in the scholarly community, the Gospel of Thomas is not given the same attention as First and Second Maccabees. Right. Where would you a, find a good list of the one you know of the canonical non-canonical writings that are on your reading list honestly i would pick up like one of the uh one of the bibles that your roman catholic right neighbors brothers and sisters use you can pick up one of those on amazon just those will have some of the not what we consider canonical because that's mm-hmm. probably what this person's talking about yeah. and that would have stuff right. like enoch and first and second maccabees how it. should we think about them though like what category historically would they informative into? they are okay. background historical the same way you would read josephus that's what i'm looking yeah. for yeah yeah, like, uh, what's the, uh, Josephus is yeah. just for, and for those who may not know, Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote a collection called Antiquities, mm-hmm. which was essentially surveying Jewish history and the time of Christ. So it's very, it's a very influential work to understand what was happening in what we call Second Temple Judaism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but like dangers, Kyle, if we found Third Corinthians, if I found Third <laughs> Corinthians, it wouldn't be apocryphal or non-canonical. I, right? Would it be canonical though? It, if it had all the, if it, <laughs> okay. if it met restraint, the, restraint, if it met mm-hmm. the checklist, but so not much danger, maybe some benefits. Yeah. General purpose commentaries are resources for Bible study and teaching. What do you, what are, maybe we just answer this question. What are the things that you go to regularly that are not a commentary on a book of the Bible, but are more general purpose commentaries or resources for Bible study and teaching? Jen? Uh, general resources. I mean, you need a good study. Bible is a great place to start Mm -hmm. uh, just to kind of get your bearings. Um, and I wouldn't say, I don't know that I use like, like a one volume, something to get me, um, where I need to go. I I do typically use, um, book specific commentaries, but some of that's probably has to do with the fact that I'm usually in one particular book for an extended period of time. I think you need to have a good systematic theology text. And I would say, in addition to that, have a good thumbnail version of that, like mm-hmm. something that can kind of like jog your memory of, oh, yeah, I need to go look at the doctrine of um, of uh, God for this or yeah. whatever it is. That's good. Uh, and then um, I would say it's nice to use some of the on, some, you know free online resources that are helpful are things like uh, – uh, Bible Hub, where you can very easily see a verse in multiple translations right on the same screen. And so when you hit clunky language, it helps you sort through what was probably resting behind that. Yeah. Um, that's good. What else? What do you guys got? I use Logos every time I'm doing a sermon. I know that's not a, a Bible commentary, mm-hmm. but for people who are thinking about getting up kind of some digital resources, mm-hmm. Logos is a great uh, tool to use. I agree with you. I don't really have a one-stop shop. Like, here's mm-hmm. my Bible commentary. Well, people will say they use like a Bible dictionary and oh, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing, that's which I, I think like I'm a, probably substituting like a free online resource for that, but, yeah. I, but I know that that's, that's been a good helpful point. Some cross, like a cro- There's a good, some good yeah. cross-reference stuff. Yeah. Uh, one piece of advice that I would give, I didn't realize this when I first started going to seminary, like I thought I should go buy a commentary set. Mm-hmm. Like I should get a New Testament set mm-hmm. from Pillar or I should get whatever. Uh, but it's better to not get a set 
pick the best commentary of for whatever set. book of the Bible mm-hmm. you're right. using. So depending on what book you're studying, go get the best commentary on Matthew. There's actually a good resource yeah. called bestcommentaries.com. I was about to pull it up. Which uh, it gives different categories of commentaries. There's like technical commentaries, devotional commentaries, mm-hmm. pastoral commentaries. So some of it's going to deal really intensely with the original languages. Other stuff's going to be pretty practical. And so I go there once a week looking mm-hmm. for looking for the best commentary on fill in the blank book of the Bible. And I use the Ligonier top five commentaries Ligonier list has, too. Has That's been list. helpful to me. And yep. just always bear in mind, you, you, you want, you probably want something scholarly. You want something more lay low, like give yourself a, a mix mm-hmm. um, of levels mm-hmm. uh, of commentary. Don't think that all you should do is use a scholarly commentary. Yeah. And read outside your tradition a little yeah, bit with this stuff. It's good. It's a good way to learn. What do we call that? Reading promiscuously? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Curiously. Yeah. So uh, for me, I go to Calvin's Institutes. I, I don't know that there is a day where I probably don't pick up Calvin's Institutes. I'm so I'm so proud of you. I like you. Probably a lot. every single day, yeah. I would say. So if I'm thinking through like a pa- digitally or in, like, it's whatever I have on me. I've really? got like, but I've got it on me all the time. Um, so if I'm thinking through a pastoral issue, even if I'm just prayerfully thinking through something, I might pull up Calvin's chapter on prayer, read a little bit on prayer. Think, okay, I need to pray a little bit more like that or think a little bit more like this. Mm-hmm. Or if I'm working through something in the life of the church, I mean, you know, I wonder what he would have to say about this. So I go to Calvin all the time. The, uh, for a more general Bible, I really, really like – there is a one volume that is pretty indispensable for me, and it's uh, Bill and Carson. G.K. Bill and Carson have a one volume called Commentary on the New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. It's a great book. It's what? huge. It's a fantastic book. It's huge in size or it's huge massive. in importance? I mean, it's probably a thousand. Yeah, it's not a book mm-hmm. that you read through, but uh, golly, it is exceptional. Like it is. How much does it cost? It's probably thirty five dollars on Amazon. Oh, that's. But you can also get it on Logos, probably for the same for price or a little bit cheaper. Yeah, it's really good, and I use it a lot. Um, for a single volume on the Old Testament, I use Bruce Waltke's Old Testament theology. Oh, I use that. It's fantastic. It is a really good resource, uh, and for a single volume on New Testament theology, I'll typically use either Shriner's New Testament theology, which is really good. The King and His Beauty. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Those are good. General <laughs> yeah. Research Drama of Scripture is another one that we do for high-level narrative mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so, yeah, those are some good ones. Um, there is a New Studies in Biblical Theology series. I know that's a mouthful. New Studies in Biblical Theology. You'll recognize them on Amazon because they're gray. Like, kind of like a silver. Yeah, they look like a gray silver. Those will get into more niche stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they'll do like Promise of the Land in Joshua. Yeah. But or they'll do like Promise of the Land throughout Scripture. Stuff like that. They're really that good. That one was that. written by my friend Oren Martin. Oh really? One of my best friend. There we go. That's the one that came to mind. Promise. Yep. Um, um, I'll tell you something else. Oh, I'm jumping in on no, you. Go, go for it. Um have you guys seen Robert Alter's Hebrew Bible? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It is really cool. It's it's uh, a little pricey. Um, but man, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to read how he has he has translated the and and commented on Old Testament texts. It's good. He's Jewish. Good Bible dictionaries too. There are a lot of good Bible dictionaries out there. IVP has a good set of Bible dictionaries. But if you can find some good Bible dictionaries, it'll, like they have titles like Dictionary of the Later New Testament or Dictionary of Paul and His Writings, mm-hmm. Dictionary of the Gospels. Gospels yeah. Those are really helpful. Um, they're expensive, and they're big, and they're heavy. <laughs> if you buy everything that we've just suggested yes. to you, yeah, you're yeah. probably going to have you... to have a mortgage. Yeah, yes. it's true. We'll need to add a room um, onto your house. Yeah, add them slowly. Um, okay, can we speak of Christ as eternally existent, or do we just use that terminology for the Son only? Can we speak of Christ 
as eternally existing. And let's let's take this the most like Jesus. When, like, well, I don't know if he's asking it like Jesus. Let's take it that way. Can we speak of Jesus Christ as eternally existent, or just the Son only? What do you guys think? Straighten us out, Jake. Don't, don't, don't do that. No, no I'm tired. Think. Help me. No, seriously. Um, I think you can say that the Christ was promised. So I think you can say the Christ was promised. I don't know that I'm comfortable at saying the Christ is eternally existent yeah. because the whole idea of the incarnation yeah. is that the Christ is here. Yeah, right. Uh, Interesting how that's your theology with Christology but oh. not pneumatology. Oh, <laughs> Okay, um, fair enough. Uh, but no, so my, looking my, for some consistency. My knee jerk would would be to say, it's best to say that the Son of God is eternal, and that in the incarnation He assumed human nature, and that what can be said of right the natures can be said of the person. That's right, and that's where this just gets really tricky. Like. I, I can't straighten it out because we're talking about the divine miracle of the sun becoming human, and language will always fail us. Yeah. The category that we have got to use is that if we're talking about the person of the son, Jesus Christ, who is the <laughs> Messiah, like person, then we can say, yes, all things that are both true of the son and Jesus of Nazareth are true of the one person. Mm-hmm. He died. He lived. He's eternal. He was crucified. He reigns forever. So, if we're talking about the person, and I know that is it's a it's a technical systematic category, then I think we can say, yeah, the 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 person Jesus, the Christ, who is the Son of God, is eternal. Often, that's not what we're doing. We're right. ta- we're actually talking about the nature of his humanity, mm-hmm. like Jesus of Nazareth, the the mm-hmm. man who did come into being. We can't speak of Jesus of Nazareth in terms of the incarnation being eternal. Does that make sense? Yep. And that's nature. And so the category that was given to me, I didn't make this up, and I think it's faithful to the historical church creeds and kind of the the decision-making mechanism they were using for language. We talk about persons being acted or acted upon, not natures. A nature doesn't act, and a nature isn't acted upon. A person acts, and a person is acted upon. Yep. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Um, what's up next? Uh, what would you say to a friend who says they don't need any other sources for spiritual growth outside of scripture? Good luck. <laughs> Good luck, sucker. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that even, um, but he, this is also very common sentiment. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. that, like kind of me, myself, and my Bible. Yeah. Well, yeah. scripture alone, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. first of all, I would say, I don't think you're reading your Bible with a lot of closeness because the Bible is telling you that you need more than your Bible. Mm. We'll say more about that. The Bible is telling you that you are to uh, be in community with others. And that doesn't just mean have a meal. It means that just like what we're doing, you should be having these conversations Mm -hmm. with with other people. By the Um, way, just side note, if that's happening, I'm just so excited about that. Like, if, we, if the conversation we're having here is sparking other conversations, mm-hmm. like that's why we're doing this. Mm-hmm. So I hope yeah. I hope that you're not just listening to this, but you're having these conversations with somebody else. Yeah, for sure. Also, just as I the, the the second part of that is that the Bible is telling us that that is not the way to think. Is that we know that people are gifted to teach, and so you're denying that the office of teacher or the the function of teacher is necessary in your spiritual growth. So those two things, but then also I just would caveat this by saying, I don't actually think that there are a ton of people who are saying this. I think that there are, I think there are some who are, but I think most people are 
living this without it being top of mind enough to say it. They think, oh, I I should be able to just sit and open this and the spirit will just tell me what it means. So I think there's there are some people who would say this is all I need. Uh, But then there are other people who are thinking, oh, why doesn't this work for me the way it does for everybody else who who is just sitting and doing this? on Yeah, I agree. And that's why we've talked about this on the podcast before. I forget what episode it was where we distinguish between what the reformers meant of sola scripture mm-hmm. or solo scripture. They yeah. were not advocating for a scripture alone mm-hmm. theology. Mm-hmm. They were arguing that the scripture alone is our normative authority. Yes. That it is the magisterial governing authority for all other theology that we would be doing, not that we should be reading it alone. Because often people have this instinct because they just misunderstand what the Reformation was all about. Yep. I'm with you. Um, do we want to take – got like three minutes. you want to do, do another one? Yeah. The, uh, the difference between the son being eternally begotten and eternally subordinate. Oh, I mean she, she, uh, In three minutes, I can Kyle? Do it. I, can I mean, do it. I, mean, we'll I can do it. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, come on. I can do it. <laughs> so what is it? Uh, eternally begotten is uh, a reference to the eternal nature of the son. It's something that is true of God in himself. The father is eternally unbegotten. The son is eternally begotten. And the spirit eternally proceeds. That's the distinguishing features of each person of the Trinity. There is no subordination in begottenness or in procession because there's only one God. And so uh, uh, you can't be subordinate to yourself. If you have a will, your will doesn't subordinate itself to its will. It just is the will. Uh, Where we see submission or authoritative language come in in the Godhead isn't in God himself, but is in the history of redemption, specifically when the eternally begotten son takes upon a human nature. Therefore, we would not want to say that the son is eternally subordinate, even though he is eternally begotten. We're only saying that the one who was sent in time submits his human will to the divine will. Yeah, that's great. How long was that? Less than three minutes. That was impressive. I, I bet. I bet I get more questions about it. I bet you do. Okay. <laughs> um, is the Bible only inerrant in its original manuscripts? And what does this mean for trust in the Bibles that we have? That's you, Jen. I'm sorry. Say that again. I was <laughs> noticing that JT had tweeted while we were recording and I got no, distracted. That, that was a, <laughs> was I had, it during I had a break. It, yeah. <laughs> we were on a break. <laughs> okay. Say it again. Is the Bible inerrant in its original manuscripts only inerrant in its original manuscripts? And what does that mean for trust in the Bibles we have? Oh, I'm not going to start with that answer. <laughs> okay, well, I'll start. Okay. Uh, so typically when we are talking about the doctrine of inerrancy, we are talking about the doctrine of inerrancy as inerrancy means in a technical way that the Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts or what sometimes are called the original autographs, okay? That the uh, when we're thinking about the the reason that's significant is because we are saying that it is the inspired word of God that is inerrant. Um, so what does that mean for the Bibles we have, which are not the original manuscripts? And um, we also, just as a reminder, don't have the original manuscripts. We have great copies, um, some of which are very old and very close to the originals. And also the New Testament is the most well-attested ancient document from a manuscript basis period, end of discussion. It is incredibly well attested from a manuscript basis in comparison with other ancient documents. And so we have very good copies of the original manuscripts. We have more copies than of almost any other significant ancient text, uh, and those copies are good. So that's really – that's some good arguments in favor of trusting that we have approximate 
our current Bibles, the Bibles we have, are very, very, very strong, exceedingly strong approximations of the original manuscripts. Now, that being the case, a couple of other things. They are not the original manuscripts. So why would we use the category for inerrancy for our Bibles if these are not the original manuscripts? Now, some would say that you can. You can use the category of inerrancy for the original manuscripts because there is uh, the deviation is marginal. Marginal as to be uh, like negligible. negligible. <clears throat> that's fine, and that's one way of handling it. I don't know uh, that – what? Are you going to say that the Bible's not inerrant? No, I'm not going to say oh. the Bible's not inerrant. I'm going to say what we both Jeez, say all the time, which face. is that our primary reason he for trusting so the Bible is not because of the coherency of the Bibles that we have. Right? What, what is it? The primary reason is because it's the self-attestation yes. of God. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and so say that, what that means. It means that God is attesting to himself by the work of the Spirit through his word, and that we do take the trustworthiness of the Bible by faith as we take the trustworthiness of God. So the Bible is inerrant, not because it's been well-preserved, but because it's inspired by God, first and foremost. And illuminated and attested to. And illuminated and attested to. So, And now you might feel, well, wow, that's terribly convenient, faith in a higher authority. But the reality is... Is that the fundamental commitment of every, of every human heart is faith based? You will appeal to your highest standard by use of your highest standard. You can do no other because the moment you appeal to justify the validity of your highest standard with something else, you have just made that thing the highest standard. Give an example of another way we do this. Okay, so let's just say somebody's like, "Well, um, I, uh, uh, you know, I believe in science." Mm-hmm. Okay, so they would say, "Well, I take my belief in science on the basis of what?" Well, they'd say, "Well, because you know it's proven, it's testable, it's workable, it's whatever." But there's not like some rock somewhere that you go and cut open to find the book the of science, science. Rock, yeah, right, science rock. <laughs> you know that that old. It, I think it's called schoolhouse rock, actually. <laughs> that old non-existent science rock out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's not a place where you go and to discover this to go. Okay, well, that's the highest standard. You've used that highest standard because you use it. It's like the thing that you appeal to as your highest standard is also the thing you use to measure any claimant against the standard you're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do this with the Bible. And Christians have to be open and honest about that. That So if somebody says, can you trust the Bibles you have? I would say absolutely you can trust the Bibles you have. Primarily because God is trustworthy in all that he does. He's revealed himself and he attests to himself in scripture. But secondarily, the Bibles we have are very strong, uh, very strong, very close, very well attested to from a manuscript, uh, uh, from uh, the basis of our manuscripts, what we have and the quality of what we have. And then additionally, the Bible does what almost no other ancient collection like this will do, which is it always acknowledges where there might be discrepancies. You know those little notes in your Bibles? They're saying, hey, sometimes it's translated this way, or this isn't found, or the little brackets. The Bible is not trying to hide the areas where it gets a little gray. Bible translators are not pulling some long con. They're very open and honest about the translation process, about our manuscript evidence, and about how that's reflected in the scriptures themselves. If you think you're being fooled by the Bible, it is a terrible con. It is constantly pointing out to you where there might be some question. That's right. So at the the end of the day, I I don't think you have any – or should have any hesitation of holding the Bible that perhaps is in your hand or on your phone so long as it's a – uh, uh, and most translations are very, very well done in saying this is God's inspired, authoritative, and inerrant word without any qualifications. Yeah. I'm with you on that. In that order. Yep. Yeah. Okay. 
That's it for our questions. Hey, we did much better we this did. time. We Guys, just ended I'm, season three. I, I know. Well, kind of. There's an episode coming that y'all aren't on. Oh. oh. Do you have other friends? <laughs> No, but we're going to troll you guys pretty hard. It's so just didn't feel appropriate to have you on. Okay. Hey, JT, let's just go have lunch without yeah, Kyle we'll today. Just go hang out. Brad, Ryan, you guys want to come? Fair enough, honestly. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, which will be a special episode and an exception to the rule, uh, we're going to be doing some best of Knowing Faith clips from the previous three seasons, and uh, we're going to be making some jokes. Oh. With producer Ryan. I feel unsafe. I feel very unsafe. And uh, guest Mason King. So we had to take out the power dynamic out of the room. You know, <laughs> to, to, so that, we, so that it You could have be. the power here. <laughs> <laughs> you used to work for me, you no longer do, and you have access. Uh, it is it is a great, I really have a great, great position in this room. For now. For now. Um, hey, of, listen, of long cons. outside <laughs> of that, you'll have, um, we will kick back into new episodes launching in February. Um, the producer is saying yes, February. So we'll uh, we'll start launching new episodes for season four in February. We will be definitely finishing out uh, the second half of Acts. I don't know what we're going to be doing in that other arc. We'll we got to do we got to finish the Apostles. We'll Creed. wrap up the Apostles Creed. There's a couple of lines that we've left hanging. We'll wrap those up and then we'll come up with something good. Maybe we'll just move to Nicaea. Yeah, uh, maybe that'd be fun. What do you think, mm. Jen? Oh. Uh. Okay. Well, we hey, we sat through two semesters history. of first and second. Serial, I would love so. to do church history. We'd like early church history, Reformation too. church history. Yeah. If you guys history. have any thoughts on what what you'd want the other arc to be outside of Acts, please tweet us at tweet hashtag at us. Knowing Faith Podcast. We'd love to hear your ideas. Until then, see you next time. Grace and peace.